0: law is about people, it's about facts, um, it's, you know, you have to fit within a legal framework, but you have to tell a compelling story to convince your decision maker to do what you want them to do. Um, and so you have to you have to fit it in the right legal framework or convince them to push the bounds of the legal framework, but you have to comp- tell a compelling story. Um, and that is true if you're calling evidence or cross-examining or making submissions. It all has to be towards the goal of being able to tell a compelling story at the end of the day, to convince a decision maker to do what you want them to do.
1: Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, Defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Reese Davies is a shining star among lawyers for her accomplishments in criminal, constitutional, and human rights law. In 2017, she was awarded the Law Society of Ontario's Laura Legge Award for her leadership among women in the profession. Her versatility as an advocate is truly astounding. She has argued at all levels of trial and appeal court throughout Canada. This includes administrative tribunals, federal courts, and multiple appearances before the Supreme Court of Canada. She is also routinely assigned as counsel for public inquiries, coroner inquests, and other high-profile matters of public concern. Some of her past involvements include the Mayor Arar Inquiry, the Inquiry into Pediatric Forensic Pathology. Pathology in Ontario, and more recently, acting as counsel for the inquest into Pat Ashley Smith. Her contributions have had a profound and lasting impact not only in law, but upon young advocates looking to join the profession. She now holds a prestigious position of constitutional litigator in residence at the David Asper Centre for Constitutional Rights at the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto. She also holds an adjunct professor position at Osgoode Law School, teaching in evidence and in the LLM program. In 2013, Breeze became the first women's vice president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. She now serves as vice president to the same organization. She is co-editor of For the Defense Magazine, assistant editor of Canadian Rights Reporter, and pro bono duty counsel for the Court of Appeal for Ontario. Above all, Breeze is a person who deeply understands her clients, their struggles, and how the justice system can be improved upon to assist them. Join us in this episode of Of Counsel, Where Breeze tells us a story about her, her profession, and how she manages to keep it all in balance. Breeze, you clearly have a demonstrated interest in criminal law, even at a very early stage uh, at law school, winning the Professor uh, Mewitt Prize in Criminal Law at University of Toronto. And I'm curious because you know, depending on who we speak to, there's different interest points, but many people seem to have an interest early on. So I want to know, is this something in criminal law that you were driven to from an early stage or is it something that you decided during undergrad that this is where you wanted to be? Where was the um, the tipping point for you?
0: So When I was applying to university, I was sort of deciding between two different uh, areas of study, sort of the traditional arts uh, or music. And so I actually started my university career in music and was planning on being a performance musician. Um, And I learned fairly quickly in that first year of university when I was studying music that... uh, Music had been the thing I did to get away from being in my head and doing academics. And when it became the only thing I was doing, um, I wasn't enjoying it as much. And so I realized that it, it was what I was meant to do as sort of a, an escape. And so I left music and I decided to pursue an, an arts degree. And in the course of going through a whole variety of different majors, I stumbled on criminology late in the game. So my last year, uh, I did criminology, and I was fascinated by um, criminal law and the players in the system and the interaction between the police and social policy and um, the courts. Uh, so, and then, you know, after I, f- you know, I was in my fourth year and thinking about what I was doing after... Everybody was applying to law school, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go to law school or go to graduate school, so I applied to both. And uh, when I got into law school, I thought, well, naively, I thought, well, law, law school is only really two years longer than a graduate program, so I might as well do that. Uh, so I went into, went to law school, uh, and then it felt like being back in grade nine again, where they tell you <laughs> what subjects you have to study, and yeah. uh, criminal law was, and constitutional law were the only two that really interest me. I was fortunate enough to to study with Professor Mewitt. He was my criminal law prof uh, and became a mentor to me in law school. Uh, So it was a real honor to win that award, but he also sort of lit the fire uh, in me in terms of continuing to study criminal law. So I knew early on in law school that that's where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. I also had uh, the real fortune to work for Clayton Ruby during law school. Okay. Uh, so
1: even as a, like you got in as a summer student?
0: Uh, not even as a summer student. I I worked for him part-time all the way through law school, starting in my second year. Um, at that time, just as a coincidence, they did not have articling students because Marlis Edward, his partner, mm-hmm. was doing the blood inquiry. And so she was off-seconded to be as commission counsel for that. And so they didn't have articling students. So they had various law students that they would have do the work that articling students or Clay had various students who would do the work that articling students would normally do. And I was one of those students. Uh, and so I, I essentially got to article for him during law school. Uh, and at that point in time, I was completely hooked.
1: Right. Well, that's amazing because when you're sitting there, even in law school, here you are, in the middle of cases that eventually are going to become the very cases that people are going to be studying with later on of someone like Clayton Ruby. And, you know, from one of our previous guests, too, said the same thing, uh, Gerald Chan. Clayton was really motivating in the way, um, you know, what drove, drove him into criminal law. And I'm curious, like, is it something about uh, Clayton's advocacy style and Marlis as well that, that was unique and, and and just enhanced the passion that you had?
0: So, Clay and Marlis are both incredibly passionate uh, about the work that they do. Uh, They are both brilliant lawyers, um, and it's completely infectious. Um, I think what for me was so amazing about working for both of them was that they are completely different in their approaches to preparing a case. So, Clay has a unique ability to very quickly determine what the issue will be in a case. Mm-hmm. And he will focus on that. Um, he, he can read facts. He can read legal issues and determine very quickly what's going to decide the case. Um, and he is very efficient. And so that's the issue that you will pursue. Uh, Marlis is much more of, uh, the school that you Consider every possible option. You research every possible defense, every possible theory, and then you come back and once you've done all of that work, um, you exercise the judgment you need to exercise to decide which issues you're going to p- pursue. So it's really the turning every t- turning over every stone before you make the judgment call you need to make about how to how to run the case. And so, um, you know, at times it was difficult to practice with people who are so different, but Mm -hmm. it also was an amazing experience to see that you can be incredibly successful with very different styles. And so it, it sort of gave me the freedom to think, okay, I've got to, I've got to come up with my own approach to how to do this.
1: That's interesting because when you uh, mention uh, Clay, it sort of seems like this, you know, like you say, they're both geniuses, but in different ways, whereas Clay can recognize the, 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 problem immediately. And and Marlis um, seems to work through it until it's solved. And um, But isn't, you know, when you're looking at someone like Clay, is it not intimidating as a student to think I'll never get to that point where I have that insight? Or conversely, never get to that point where I can prepare and and have the the dedication someone like Marlis does? What, I guess what I'm asking is what lessons do would you pass on to young lawyers who that you've learned during your articles and summer, summering with these two giants?
0: So I think the most important lesson that I learned uh, from both of them is that there's no single way to be successful in this business, and I think that's a that's such an important lesson for all of us to learn because we're all different and we all come at it with different strengths, um, and. Yeah, it's in, it was intimidating to work for both of them. Um they had way more faith in me than I had in myself in my early years. And they had a really interesting um approach to mentorship. Um they both felt very strongly that if a law, a young lawyer working for them was part of the team, they did part of the work, not just behind the scenes but in court. Um and so from a very early age age from a very early time in my practice, um I was in court with both of them doing parts of arguments, doing parts of examinations. And so I watched them a lot, but I also got to do things on my own with mm-hmm. them there. Um, so I got an enormous amount of feedback from them. And that really um, is something that I would encourage people to do, try and get to work with great people and actually do things, not just watch them, but do them and get their feedback. Because I think um, – you do have to do it yourself. You have to make mistakes. Uh, you have to think it through on your own and you have to have someone there uh, who can say, this was good. You could have done this better. What about this? Um, why did you do it this way? Why didn't you do it another way? And be able to actually analyze what you're doing.
1: What would you say though to young advocates who are wanting to do this, but you know inevitably you're going to reach a point where you lose an argument or you're going to feel overwhelmed or there's just so much on the line how do you overcome that fear even with mentors working closely with you uh, how do you overcome that fear to think am I going to do something wrong because there's real consequences people's lives are in the balance and here you are making an argument to for example try and keep evidence excluded that could affect the case one way or the other
0: um, I don't ever want to get over that feeling because that's the feeling that drives me to do the work that I do. I don't ever want to feel like I got this hand, I got this covered. I'm, I'm good. Um, I always want to feel like I hope I'm not making a mistake and I'm going to do everything I can not to because the mistakes are significant for people's mm-hmm. lives. We're, you know, we're, we have people's lives, uh, in our trust and we have their trust. And so I don't ever want to get over that feeling. I certainly have over time developed more confidence in certain areas. Um, you know, I, I know how to manage a courtroom better than I did when I was a young lawyer. I know how to read judges better than I did when I was a young lawyer. Um, I think I'm better able to, um, listen to witnesses and, uh, sort of read the, the answers that they're giving me to have a sense of how far I can push my cross-examination. I think those things all come, but I've never lost the feeling that I get the day I start a trial of what have I missed? What have I, what, what stone didn't I uncover? What issue didn't I research? What issue haven't I thought of? Um, and, Will it be the deal breaker? Um, I've never lost that feeling, and I don't want to because if I do, I think I'll be overly confident.
1: I'm curious because you are um, so experienced in music as well. Is there any overlap? Like, do you flash back to think I had similar feelings when I was playing in, in these circumstances where uh, you know you, you this you say you have control of the court, but I I would think that you have to have a certain degree of recognition of the tone and the way an orchestra is going for example is there analogies to be drawn there
0: sure uh, i think the lessons i learned doing music um all the way through uh high school and into university uh, were are so helpful in law um partly they're both performance uh events mm-hmm. um you know there's substance to both of them as well uh, but the one lesson you learn when you are uh when you're doing music um certainly at the level that I was hoping to do it uh as a career you learn that you can never you can never practice enough you can never study enough you can never prepare too much um you know i my instructor would Play a saint the same piece, you know, five years down the road that he'd played today, and he would be practicing it through that whole time. You know, there's some, you know, famous clarinet concertos that every good clarinetist knows how to play, and you know, I played the Mozart clarinet concerto in my first year of university. Last week, I just saw, or last month, I just saw my instructor from that time play it with the Toronto Symphony, and I know he's been practicing it that whole time. Uh, So even when you think you know something, uh, there's something more you can learn. There's some different angle you can take. There's Mm -hmm. some nuance that you may not have appreciated before. So I think that's what you learn as an individual performer uh, the other thing you learn doing music at, in the orchestral sense is that you're never really alone you know everything depends on how everybody's working together um, and that's you know in an orchestra it's much more collaborative than it may be in an <laughs> adversarial system. Uh, but it all is an ecosystem, right? An orchestra is an ecosystem. The criminal justice system is an ecosystem. And you have to you have to know your role in it. You have to know when it's your time to sort of step up and uh, take a lead. And you have to know when it's, you know, someone else's role, someone else's time to to do their part. And so I think uh, I think all of those things have have been incredibly instrumental for me in terms of how I approach my practice.
1: Yeah. And it sounds as though they're, you know, obviously with reaching the level you did with music, it takes so much time. And um, before the podcast today, I was listening on CBC of uh, one performer talking about the the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, right? <laughs> yep. And and he, he, they said, and it seems to be very similar to what you're saying. And that is, you have to spend the first 5,000 learning everything perfectly. So the then can forget it for the next 5,000. Right. And you know, the way you describe the courtroom combining there, uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of similarities there because, um, when you get to that level in the courtroom where you're fully prepared and you know, the objections and the rules of evidence, only then can you start to look around and say, what's that juror doing? What's the judge doing? Are they writing?
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it does take a long time to get your feet under you. And certainly in, in my legal practice, it took me years to feel like I was not about to drown. Um, you know, I would think five or seven years before I thought, okay, I, I I can go into the court of appeal and I know I may not know what questions are going to be asked of me. I may not know what the outcome is going to be, but I know what that's going to look like. And I know that I can get through it uh, and do a good job. Um, and, and it took a long time. And so You know, I wish someone had told told me that it would take years to feel comfortable. (laughs) Well, now people Um, know. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So on that note, on the Court of Appeal, um, you know, one thing to me um, is how versatile your career is, because in Canada it's really, you know, one of the things you learn in law school it's overwhelming how many levels of court there are, tribunals, everything. The justice system is a huge, as you say, ecosystem. And, you know, for most criminal lawyers, we're operating in one or two court levels, provincial court, superior court. And then it seems to me that a lot of appeal uh, lawyers, appellate lawyers will stay confined to that. And then even within that, there's federal courts, divisional courts. So despite that, um, you don't narrow your advocacy at all. If anything, um, you know, I was trying to think of a lawyer that I know with as much versatility, and it's really hard to think of someone, anyone, uh, who has uh, moved around the courts with such ease that you have in federal court, divisional courts, appeal courts, Supreme Court of Canada, you name it. So... Knowing how different these forms can be, how do you jump from one to the other where one moment you're doing a joint position on some low-level assault or impaired and the next moment you're arguing with the Supreme Court of Canada on some minutiae of law that's going to change a nation?
0: So I don't really approach my uh, preparation for any case differently. Um, I always think Uh, you have to know the facts and I always want to know the facts better than anybody else. You have to know the law, um, and you have to know your audience. And so it's that last question that is what changes, uh, from forum to forum. Mm Um, and you know, I also appear before, um, administrative tribunals where the decision makers aren't legally trained, which also adds a whole different level of complexity Mm -hmm. into how you approach things. Um, but if you know who your audience is and you remember that they don't know your case as well as you know, your case, even at the Supreme court level, because you've lived it for months or years, depending on when you get involved, um, you just have to learn to pitch it to the people that are going to make the decision. Um, and, and that's, it's no, it's not that different. I mean, everybody wants to get the law, right? Everybody wants to know that the facts have supported the law. Uh, and if you're prepared, um, then you can tailor your presentation to the audience. I mean, obviously it's, you, know, you also have to learn all the rules and <laughs> mm-hmm. read all of mm-hmm. the practice directions, um, but that's part of doing the job properly, right? You just need to know the rules of the road uh, before you engage.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really important insight is knowing your audience. And the more you talk about it, the more I realize how unfair of an advantage you have of other lawyers, knowing with your musical history, knowing your audience (laughs) and knowing the acoustics of the room. Sometimes I'm a bit deaf in that regard. I have to admit, (laughs) um, but you know, looking at all the amazing things that have happened in your life, um, I, I imagine when you're sitting in law school, you probably weren't thinking, okay, I'm going to be arguing all these cases in the Supreme Court of Canada. Or maybe you were. And I'm I, I, the question I have for you is, how do you set these goals? How do you achieve them? Or is it just something that came to you serendipitously?
0: So I I do set goals. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think about where I want my practice to be five years from now. I do that on a regular basis. I sort of think... Uh, on a whole bunch of levels, pro- professionally, personally, um, sort of my extracurricular activities, what do I want to be doing? So I do think about where I want to be five years from now. I don't have a master plan about it, but I do think, you know, do, what do I want my practice to look like? Do I want to be doing the same sort of things I'm doing now? Do I want to try and branch out into other areas? Uh, is there one area that I like that I want to do more of because I find it more fulfilling? Are there things that I'm doing as a matter of habit that, Really don't bring me the, uh, either intellectual satisfaction or don't get me, um, you know, juiced up to go to court. And maybe I want to do less of that. How much, how many lawyers do I want to be practicing with that sort of thing? So I do think about where I want to be. Um, but I don't have concrete goals because I, you know, I don't think I want to do X number of cases in the Supreme Court of Canada because you can't really orchestrate that. What I, have done, and what I have always been, what has always been important to me, is my reputation. Um, I had an enormous advantage uh, in my early years working for both Clay and Marlis because um, I always call it the Ruby and Edward fairy dust. Um, I was practicing with two people who had enormous uh, reputations, um, and so by default, I got a bit of that. And I know that's a huge advantage. I was enormously privileged in that respect, but. Even when I left, I know I knew that my reputation was the most important thing, and and I knew that you know everybody would know about the last thing I did, and right. I could fall off a cliff mm-hmm. the next day, um, and so that's really what I focused on. I m- my goal is to be a lawyer that people. Um, think of in terms of having a reputation for doing good work for representing my clients and also being someone that they're happy to see on the other side of a case um, I want to be the person when a crown sees my disclosure letter they think okay She's going to defend her client. She's going to do what she needs to do. But this is going to be a process that is reasonable and fair, and uh, and we're not going to get into arguments about things. Um, that's the most important thing for me. The referrals will, and and once you are that sort of lawyer, and you become known to be that sort of lawyer, then you get the referrals for the sort of work, and you get asked to, you get tapped on the shoulder to do the sort of cases that are more complicated that require that sort of judgment. And so for me, that's the most important thing.
1: And one thing I would add to that list is your uh, reputation for your generosity in the law and uh, that um, I'm sure many, many lawyers, anyone who knows you would agree that you're a very strong contributor to educating young lawyers and young advocates. Um, You're recently appointed to the University of Toronto David Asper Centre for Constitutional Studies for the 2017-18 position. You also taught Osgood. You taught me. Uh, (laughs) Indeed. You did. You taught me uh, at Osgood for my LLM program. You're very active in that. Um, So, you know, with all this education, I mean, we could have many podcasts on. I mean, that's what you do. You teach. But if we could distill it down to maybe an inscription or two on your desk for young lawyers to know as a point of advocacy in particular, what's something that you would like every lawyer to know going into the courtroom, every student that you um, take under your wing or every lawyer that you're trying to pass on a nugget of information, what should they know?
0: So I think there are two things I think about every time I go into a courtroom. Uh, And the first one is tell a compelling story. Law is about people. It's about facts. um, It's, you know, you have to fit within a legal framework, but you have to tell a compelling story To convince your decision maker to do what you want them to do. Um, And so you have to to fit it in the right legal framework or convince them to push the bounds of the legal framework, but you have to tell a compelling story. Um, And that is true if you're calling evidence or cross-examining or making submissions. It all has to be towards the goal of being able to tell a compelling story at the end of the day to convince a decision maker to do what you want them to do. and then the other thing I always think is, judges are just people too. And that feeds into the first thing. They're going to be convinced by compelling stories because they're human. Um, but also it demystifies um, judges and judging. Um, I articled at the Superior Court. I was a clerk uh, and had an amazing year with a bunch of the trial judges at 361 University. And in that time, I the the biggest lesson I learned is that judges are people too. They want to do the right thing. They want to get the decision right. They want to um advance the law as it should advance. Um and but they're also they're just like me and just like every other lawyer. They were a lawyer once, they were an articling student once. They've their careers have been exceptional to get them to where they are. Um, but It also made me more conversational in my approach, which I think is uh, a really important thing to be able to do, is to think about interacting with the court as a conversation. Um, Because if you're having a conversation with someone where you're trying to convince them as opposed to giving a speech, you're much more likely to be convincing and compelling.
1: Right. Even the best um, conductors still enjoy good music.
0: Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. See, again, I keep feeling I should have <laughs> went to music school. I've, I've, I've totally made a mistake here. Um, Although law what, is
0: more lo- lucrative than music most of the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. The um, what is something though that you hear uh, every once in a while? You're in lawyers' lounges, and you just hear these mantras being said about key advice from other lawyers. What's something that drives you crazy that you just think is that the worst advice and I think it's wrong um, yet is so pervasive?
0: For me, I think the worst type of advice is along the lines that being a fearless advocate and being an aggressive advocate are the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we use so much language about being warriors and fighters and it being a battle zone and all of that. And I just think that is the worst advice you could give someone. Sometimes you do have to put your position forcefully before a court and you have to stand your ground with a crown or a court. But sometimes the best advocacy, even fearless advocacy, requires you to be more nuanced, requires you to negotiate, requires you to uh, be more creative and not just sort of in your face oppositional aggression. Um And I think there's way too much of that. And I think In criminal law, Mm -hmm. we have a real us versus them kind of mentality, which is maybe inevitable because defense lawyers almost exclusively defense do defense work and crowns almost exclusively do crown work. And Mm -hmm. so we do get into this kind of oppositional position. But to me, that's the worst advice. Um, to me, you need to think about each case in terms of how am I gonna approach it? You do have to be fearless, you have to be zealous, you have to protect your client's interest, but that doesn't mean having picking a fight. In fact, I don't think you should ever pick fights with people. Uh, My view is if you can't reach an agreement with a crown on a case, that's okay. You've got a judge who will make a decision. And so my view is I always try to convince the crown to do what I want them to do, but I'm never afraid to say, if I can't convince you, I think I can convince a judge.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and I I think a lot of um, advocates, um, if they actually, um, you know, those in the warrior mindset actually read things like Sun Tzu, they'd realize that many of the best battles aren't fought at all. Right. Right. And uh, I think, but it takes a lot more
0: effort. It does. Uh, And, you know, it's a tough business. And there are, Tons of frustrations in this business: bureaucratic frustrations, financial frustrations, workload issues. It's easy to get to a point where you are you are likely to just react to things, and you know it happens to the best of us. I'm Mm -hmm. sure I've snapped at a crown that I shouldn't have snapped at it over a position they took, but I try really hard not to think of them as you know my you know my. I don't think of it as a fight. I think of it as they're doing a job. And ultimately, they'll put their position forward. And I always have to be confident enough to put my position forward to a judge.
1: So outside of the courtroom, though, it's not, you know, the adversarial process isn't just adversarial in court. There's sometimes other difficulties that you come and you just mentioned financial. One of the um, big issues uh, that seems to be present among uh, lawyers is is client management. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially in criminal law, um, you're going to be dealing with difficult clients from time to time. Do you have a key piece of advice you'd give to lawyers to say, this is how I approach my difficult clients?
0: I always try to uh, manage my client's expectations around the process, because my experience is that clients... I mean, there's some clients who start off being difficult and they're difficult for any number of reasons. And, and in our business, it's often connected to other social challenges that they're having, addiction, mental health issues, and, and they're, they're just in a difficult point in their life. And so for those people, I approach them with compassion. Um, they need, Someone in their corner and often they've never had someone in their corner. And so the fact that they don't trust me is not because of who I am. It's because they've been in a number of other state run systems that haven't listened to them or respected them. And so I have to earn their trust. So th- that's one category of difficult clients that I approach one way clients who become difficult over time, usually in my experience become difficult because they have, they don't understand the process. Mm-hmm. Um, And so taking the time early on and repeatedly to explain the process, explain who makes what decisions at what point in time, when they can expect things to happen, when they can expect to hear from me, all of those things, um, and, and live up to what I say, um, because you can do a great sales pitch in the first meeting with a client. Um, mm-hmm. and if you can't deliver on what you promise, then it becomes a problem. Um, so for me, the most important thing is listening to the client to figure out what is going on with them and what they really want help with and whether I can help them with it. And then. Um, communicating in a way that they can um, they can take in the information and and accept it and that sometimes takes a lot of time. Um, if you have a sophisticated client, sometimes it doesn't. But even with sophisticated clients, it sometimes does.
1: Right. Moving outside of your clients, um, one of um, the um, the things that you're very well known for is your role as a leader among uh, women advocates. you were the winner of the Laura, is it Legge? Legge Award. Legge Award in 2017. And this uh, award recognizes women lawyers from Ontario who've exemplified the leadership within the profession. Uh, The award was established in 2007 in honor of the late Laura Legge. And she was the first woman ever elected as a bencher of the Law Society. And the first woman to serve as treasurer. When you go through the list of recipients, um, it's just amazing to to see um, you know the list of 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 people that you share that award with, including people like Janet Leeper, Chris Capuzzo, Marie Hannon, uh, only to name a few. And um, you know, I, I I know that you may not agree, but I. From what I hear with younger lawyers and speaking to female lawyers, uh, you're a real hero among them in the sense that they really aspire towards you. So what advice would you offer to, let's say, the 2030 Laura Legge Award (laughs) winner? um, What are some of the things that they need to know moving forward in the profession as a woman?
0: Um, So obviously, it was a huge honor to win that award and to be on a list with the past recipients, I mean, it, it really was unbelievable. Um, and quite frankly, I would hope that by uh, 2030, we wouldn't have awards, uh, or we wouldn't need awards to recognize the leadership of women in this profession, um, or any other group of members of our profession. Um, so I'm hoping we're moving towards uh, these becoming obsolete uh, as our profession becomes more inclusive and more welcoming for women and um, racialized lawyers and um, lawyers from all walks of life. Um, but what I think, and, and the work I think the, the, the main reason that um I got the award was because of the work I did with the Criminal Lawyers Association around retention of women in the practice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, it was with you and dearest Stewart, uh, Marla Sidworth, Jill Presser, wrote a very influential and frankly alarming report entitled The "Retention of Women in the Private Practice of Criminal Law," and and the report's finding included among other things that. Uh, there's some big changes that need to happen to preserve um, these amazing advocates who are leaving in a way that's far more disproportionate to the way men are leaving the profession.
0: Right. Um, that study, we didn't write that study. We actually commissioned the study and it was done by um, a researcher, researcher, researcher at the center of criminology and Social legal studies, Natasha Naden and, and Tony Dube up at the university of Toronto. and, and, I mean, the the fascinating thing for me is they got they got data from the law society and from Legal Aid, and they were they could analyze it in ways obviously that we couldn't uh, to put the numbers to the narratives that we had been we'd been hearing for years. Um, and just coincidentally, um, they, uh, one of the cohorts that they studied was my cohort, the people that were called in 2000. And they looked at the transition, like what, what was happening with the men and women in that cohort that started in criminal law, where were they 14 years later, which was the end date. Uh, and the the shocking number for me was in my cohort. So when I started, there were 50 women um, who started practicing criminal law in the province in private practice. Um, they could we, they could, um, separate crowns from private practice. And 14 years later, only 22 of us were left. Um, and so it just, that's just one number of a number in the study that, uh, that highlight the issue. Um, so, you know, that was a team effort. I, I mentioned that study because all I, all I did was I, you know, I co-chaired, uh, a working group that was looking at this issue for a number of years and did uh, made a number of recommendations to the Criminal Lawyers Association that ultimately resulted in the creation of two permanent positions on the board—a mm-hmm. women's vice president and a women's director—and a permanent standing committee of the board um, to deal with these issues on an ongoing basis. Um, and you know, the—I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but. You know, fast forward six years from there, we now have gender equity on the board at the CLA. And so I think there's definitely... Uh, momentum around uh, women taking leadership positions, which I think is great.
1: Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I, I remember, um, you know, I, I was at the conference when the when you were elected vice president, uh, women's vice president, and uh, it it stoked a very powerful conversation among uh, everyone who was in attendance. And uh, in particular, I remember uh, Marie Hannon uh, making a very powerful speech about its need. And I think it's opening up a, a really important dialogue, and uh, certainly, I hope anyway, uh, an appreciation of, of of its importance among the male members. And I, I'm glad to hear now that there's, there's certainly marked parity, at least in that limited
0: regard. Yeah, and so back to the question you asked me, which I haven't got to yet, which would get me in trouble if I ever did it <laughs> like this in in the court of appeal. But I think the advice I would have to people coming forward uh, in terms of of my you know, it's been recognized as leadership. I don't know that I would call it that is, is that when you see an injustice that you have some capacity to, to affect, mm-hmm. um, don't look away. Um, I am a woman in this practice. We all know that there are issues about being a woman in this practice, even still, even though more than half of the graduates are women, there's still real challenges about being accepted and, and uh, supported in this business uh, so for me, that was an injustice. Just like you know, our clients experiencing injustices. Sure. There's injustices everywhere. But if you see one that you have some capacity to influence, don't look away and don't walk away. Um, and so I I saw this as an issue, and I thought it's something that the CLA could do something about. Um, and so I volunteered, uh, and I also knew that this Criminal Lawyers Association had so much other work on its plate that it was going to take some other group of people willing to step up and do the work, uh, and not detract from all the, the day-to-day work. It needed some dedicated, um, thought and effort. And so, uh, so that's, that's my advice. And, you know, we've, we've got momentum going on the issue in terms of, of women's involvement with the CLA, but, you know, I've now, you know, you pivot and you, shift your focus and now the criminal lawyers association is finally um after way too long looking at other issues of diversity um of our membership on mm-hmm. the of our board in the judiciary um and i think again it's going to take same sort of concerted effort uh to start addressing those issues which are uh, which are long overdue
1: yeah, well, you can certainly see the efforts. And um, I, I think, you know, if, certainly if the past is any predictor of the future, um, you're going to be able to contribute a lot to that. And so um, I think we've got a lot of good things to look forward in that regard. So when I hear you describe all this, it's a little overwhelming. I'm, I'm already getting tired listening to how much like it's 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 tiring to listen to going through my mind of what needs to be done to prepare these cases in the Court of Appeal and jump over the federal court and all these other things. And uh I'm curious what do you do to manage uh all of this because you have to maintain your health, you have to maintain your mental health, you have to um, be able to balance that with other aspects of of your life. What do you do to achieve that balance?
0: Well, thankfully napping is my superpower. <laughs> uh I can I can do it effectively and I do it often. Um but sort of all joking aside, uh I I have lots of other interests um, I am I spend a lot of time um, exercising I run I swim so you're triathlons. I am that's a new thing in my life I'm doing <laughs> triathlons um, but I also have lots of great friends that have nothing to do with law who could not care less mm-hmm. what case I was doing or where I was or they don't even ask which is great um, so I have friends that, sort of pull me away from the work that we do. Um, I love cooking. I spend time with my family. So I, you know, I, I make the most of the time that I'm not working. I, you know, I'm not going to joke about the number of hours I, I work, but... Mm-hmm. I have lots of other interests and I make time for them and I make them a priority. And I carve time out of my day every day to work out and see people and, um, spend time with my family. So what does
1: a great day look like for you?
0: So a great day, a great day would start with a really early morning workout. Um, uh, my favorite would be in the pool, uh, for me, that's the best way to start the day. Uh, then I'd be at the office uh, relatively early or working at home. I do that a fair bit. Um, I'd be doing some interesting case and I'd be uh, working on it with uh, my colleague, Owen Goddard, who's been working with me for uh, four years now, happened to also have been my student, uh, feels like a million years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, we'd, you know, do something, we have some interesting case somewhere. Uh, and then we'd after court, I I like going out after court, having a drink or uh, having a meal with whoever I'm working with to kind of debrief on what happened. And on a really good day, uh, I would uh, I'd walk my dog and then I'd probably go for a run in the evening.
1: So I won't ask you specifically about what a bad day looks like, but <laughs> um, bad
0: but- day looks like me sitting at my desk eating chocolate, <laughs> freaking out about a case. <laughs>
1: What about those days where you can't shake um, something that's happened in court, sort of these ghosts of litigation where yeah. you, you have something really heavy on your mind because it's coming up or because it's happened? Um, what advice do you have for lawyers who are trying to get past those, those speed bumps in their careers?
0: Um, first of all, I think the best advice I ever got was you're going to lose. You're going to lose and you're going to lose cases you don't think you should lose. Um, and it's happened to the greats that came before me. And so it's going to happen to me too. Um, but what I, I mean, I also use exercise and working out as a way to kind of get rid of that as well. Um, I, but I do, I, you know, I'm not anybody who knows me knows that I angst about everything. I mean, I, I can tell you questions that i asked in cross-examination seven years ago (laughs) in a case that i wish i had never asked i still know them i still know what the case is i still could tell you what the answer was
1: and you probably think about those even though you've won the cases you're thinking you know but i could have won it better
0: (laughs) i i think i mean i i can't get rid of them and on some level i hope i have learned from them and they're not just you know becoming obsessive thoughts um and I think I have to a large extent, but I've, I can't get rid of them. I, I don't, I have cases that I still, um, you know, I still think about and think about what could I have done differently? How could I have done this differently to have a different result?
1: I'm sure it's very comforting for many people <laughs> to hear that those issues that they're struggling with also affect, um, Titans like yourself. Um, the you know, One thing that we hear a lot from judges, the public, and the media is about access to justice. This is a very live issue. And it's a very concerning issue. And a common response is often about lawyers taking on cases pro bono um, You know, as one of the solutions. And what I think is lost in that discussion uh, sometimes is just how much lawyers actually do give back. And you're, uh, certainly no exception to that. In fact, I would characterize you as a leader in that regard. You do pro bono work, uh, duty counsel at the Court of Appeal of Ontario. So just for people to get a sense, I just, can you explain what you do, um, as duty counsel with the Court of Appeal for Ontario?
0: Yeah. It's an amazing program that was started by, uh, Marie Hennen. Alison Wheeler and the late Justice Rosenberg um and it is exceptional and I wish it was replicated everywhere um so when an, when a criminal acu- someone's been convicted of a criminal offense and wants to appeal to the court of appeal um they will apply for legal aid. And legal aid in Ontario has a requirement, has financial requirements, but also have merit requirements. So the lawyers on the case uh, have to write a letter saying why they ought to get funding for an appeal. And there's a committee within legal aid of lawyers that look at these cases and say, should we or should we not dedicate legal aid funding to an appeal? Um, when someone is turned down, they end up in what's called the inmate or in-person stream without a lawyer. And, and these are
1: serious cases. This isn't like, you know, this is some of them are I imagine facing murder convictions and
0: they can be very serious. Murder is, is less common. Um, and there are ways that we can, the duty counsel program can, uh, try and convince either the court or legal aid to fund counsel, which is part of what we do, but yeah, it could be anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. it can be complicated child pornography, complicated frauds, um, you know, any indictable matter that's going to end up at the court of the court of appeal. So what happens is, uh, it it ends up in this inmate or, um in person stream, and we and the court sits four days a month, two in Kingston and two in two in Kingston to to address matters of people who are in custody in the Kingston area, and two in Toronto for people who are either not in custody or um, are uh, in the Toronto area or elsewhere, and we either try to bring applications under 684 to convince the court to uh, to have legal aid, give them a certificate, which takes convincing the court that the the case has merit. So we have to review the files and make a legal argument, or we argue the appeals themselves. So the way that happens is about two weeks before the dates when you're going to be duty counsel, you will get boxes of materials delivered to your office and it may be that the there's eight matters to be argued that on in those two days or 10 matters to be argued and you always have a buddy there's always two duty counsels sometimes more if it's really complicated and you split them up and you review the files you get transcripts you have an appeal book you get the judgments you get Jury uh, charges, if they are jury charges, and you read them, and you uh, determine whether or not there's an argument that you can make on behalf of the accused, and then you go and do it.
1: And so, just so we're clear, I mean, I, I imagine there's some stipend for uh, expenses or whatever, but this isn't something these lawyers are getting paid for.
0: It's a volunteer program, and so it's we have funding for um, you know administrative support, um, but we do it as volunteers uh, and there's a little army of us um that that do this every year
1: so despite this army and other armies and other court houses in different capacities there's you know there's there's more stuff that goes on that we could again spend a long time discussing um access to justice is by no way or means solved um so what do you see some of the big problems how can we what can what can we do as lawyers to make things better, and what can society do? What can judges do? What are some of the big issues you see facing this problem?
0: Um, first of all, I think we need to have a properly funded, sustainably funded legal aid program uh, in this province. Um, you know, we have the Jordan decision that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, about 18 months ago now, and there have been tons of resources poured into the criminal justice system, um, in the, in terms of more judges, more crowns, more, um, uh, more bail vetting people, uh, absolutely no more funding for defense counsel. So mm-hmm. we have this crisis of, you know, on an administration of justice level. And two of the three main players in the system get increased funding and the defense doesn't. So I think we need to recognize that the system will not function effectively if you don't have um, properly funded defense counsel to do cases. Because you know, first, everybody is entitled to a a good defense and having good lawyers on defense lawyers in cases makes them more efficient, makes the system more efficient and makes it less likely that things are going to get sent back on appeal. So that's one area. I think we also have to spend a lot more time thinking about how we increase the efficiency of our system. You know, defense lawyers spend, and this isn't pro bono in the sense of I found an interesting case that I want to donate my time to. We spend a phenomenal amount of time doing things that we will never get paid for through legal aid because it's a requirement of moving a case through the system and legal aid has decided they're not funding it. So you could have five or 10 or 15 appearances before you ever get to a preliminary inquiry or a trial or a plea Legal aid's not paying for those appearances. So there's mm-hmm. tons of time where you, where you are working without getting paid, which contributes to all of the issues around retention of women, you know, who's becoming defense lawyers, who's staying in this business, whether racialized lawyers are going to get into this business or not. It's very difficult to make a living as much as the hourly rate seems uh, on legal aid. It's very hard to make a living on a legal aid practice. And so one of the factors in the report we've already mentioned, the retention of women, is the unpredictability of income. And so I think if you have predictable income and you have predictable hours that you're going to have to spend doing things that actually look at how are we going to run this system efficiently so we're not wasting everybody's time, things would be a lot better.
1: Yeah, you you raise a good point because it's not even, I think lawyers, it's easy to perceive lawyers as just uh, showing up in court and what are you doing anyway, but there's expenses that come with that. You know, you do 10 appearances and you have to park downtown Toronto at College Park. I mean, you very often you're ending up on a balance sheet that you can even be losing money on times on cases, especially low level cases where younger lawyers are taking on people um, who, like you say, are trying to get into the profession and stay in the profession. That's where the expenses are often highest. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, there, there definitely seems to be something that needs to be done in a balancing because it's easily overlooked uh, how much this adds up and people assessing cases and whether they want to continue on in the profession.
0: And it also goes to the issue about the unpredictability of how much work you have to do, because if you're spending, you know, young lawyers doing legal aid work are spending an hour or two or three Running around courthouses every day, you're not even going to get to doing any real work until halfway through your day. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising then that you're working into the evenings, working on weekends, let alone going to jails and all the bureaucracy around that. I mean, it, there's, there's all sorts of challenges in the system, but, but I really think, um, like, for example, I have no idea why other than perhaps economics, we do not have in Ontario a unified, um, uh, computerized digital system where the police load the disclosure into a digital system, the crown can access it, defense can be sent a password to access the portions they can have, the court can access them for exhibits. And then if someone's sentenced, the correctional service can access whatever they're entitled to, or if there's an NCR disposition, the review board can access it all from a single system, just on the basis of what, um, what rights you have to access information. I have no idea why we haven't done that yet. There's no reason why I get DVDs and paper and, stuff that's not compatible with Macs, or like, it's just, it's absurd that we're not there yet. And um, again, all
1: that comes with expense because now you have to buy more equipment and more staff to deal with it. And this efficient inefficiency adds up. Okay. So moving more into the law geeky side of things, <laughs> I want to, I want to talk about some of the specific um, issues as it relates to the work you've done. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things that you're very active in are inquiries. Um, and in particular, you were involved in the Mara inquiry yeah. and also some other really important inquiries. Um, the inquests in the death of Ashley Smith. You were also involved in uh, the relatively recent death of Andrew Loku, uh, in inquiry into the pediatric uh, forensic pathology in Ontario. And Uh, there's no doubt, you know, from, again, from the law geek perspective, all these, these really important insights, uh, come out of it. But from a public value, um, point of view, being involved in this and, and seeing the outcome and the recommendations, uh, how would you convince someone that we should continue doing these things, um, and, and what benefit comes from them?
0: So I, I'm going to separate Coroner's inquests from sort of more public inquiry kind of of um, of cases because uh, I think they are slightly different. Um, but the overarching benefit is that the the objective the objectives of those sorts of matters is not to adjudicate a dispute between people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the purpose is a broader lens. How do we improve policy issues in this country, in this province, on whatever the topic is? And, you know, our, as a common law system, our law does evolve. Each case builds on another and, and the, and the law changes as circumstances change. But laws, it depends on the facts. So it may be that it's incremental change when in fact what you need is an overhaul of a system. And that rarely happens in an individual case. You know, if you think of the gouge inquiry as a perfect example, there were, you know, at least five very important cases in which Charles Smith was criticized and his conduct was criticized. And I happen to be involved in one of those that Um, you know, that all sort of fed into, uh, the calling of the inquiry into forensic pediatrics in the province. None of those individual cases had the power to make the systemic changes that needed to be made within that system, the coroner system, the forensic, the forensic pediatric, uh, pathology or forensic pathology system that needed to be made to ensure that the product that they were creating you know, autopsy reports and post-mortem reports and examinations that get fed into the justice system were of the quality that we needed them to be. And there were, there were problems beyond, you know, it wasn't just a matter of criticizing Dr. Smith, although there's plenty to criticize about him. There were so many systemic issues that, that allowed him to wreak havoc the way that he did. And so you can't change those in individual cases. You have to, You have to sort of take a step back, fly at a higher altitude and and look at the policy issues. And it also allows these cases... All allow a broader set of perspectives to be involved. Um, so, for example, on the on the Gouge inquiry, I was counsel with uh, on a team of lawyers that represented the Criminal Lawyers Association. So we had our own interests. The crowns were there. The College of Physicians and Surgeons were there. Likewise, on the Ashley Smith inquiry, um, which obviously was about her tragic death, but it also was about how do we change the Correctional Service. Of Canada to ensure that there isn't another Ashley Smith. Although there have been other Ashley Smiths, um, that was the objective. And um, and on that one, I was I was counsel for the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Society, so an advocacy group that works with and and uh, with women who are criminalized or who are at risk of criminal criminalization, which would never be part of an individual case. Um, so. It does really, they do really important policy work. Um, and, you know, the, the, the weakness of those, uh, those mechanisms is for coroner's inquests, they're not binding for, well, for any inquest, the recommendations at the end of them aren't binding. Mm-hmm. Um, they depend on the will of the government or the agency that's involved to implement the recommendations. And so I think the mechanism is great at, getting the evidence, uh, studying the issue. Uh, the problem is, if there's anything that needs to be changed, it's in the enforcement mechanisms to ensure that recommendations that come out of these processes actually get implemented. And and you can just look at the gouge inquiry as an example of, of how successful that can be. Because the at uh, the whole structure of the coroner's office and the forensic pathology um, service in Ontario changed as a result of that, including legislative change and structural change. So it can make a they can make a huge difference if there is the political will to do it. At the end of the day,
1: yeah, because what we see in a lot of these, some of them seem to just fizzle out, and other which are not to say they're not as important as the gouge inquiry, but some have, um, for whatever reason, um, interests at the time or political will. Um, and, you know, springboarding a little bit on that, is there a strategy that you employ to either try and springboard these cases into the media to get attention, or even in your own cases, is there a particular um, tip or strategy that you have to get um These this type of coverage that you're after, or even just dealing with more discrete issues on individual cases.
0: Yeah, I just want to go back to something you said, though, which is, I also don't underestimate the value of these inquests um, for the long game. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they bring about immediate change. Sometimes the change is more gradual. And it's frustrating if you are an advocate that wants the change to be immediate. But if we look at Some of the momentum, for example, around the use of segregation and use of solitary confinement in prisons. Um, you know, Ashley died more than 10 years ago. And I think it's shameful that we're 10 years down the road and mentally ill people are still in segregation in this country. Um, but I think there is sometimes, uh, it is a long game and those recommendations from the Ashley Smith inquiry, for example, uh, form part of the, recent judgment in B.C. Uh, that found that indefinite solitary confinement was unconstitutional. So sometimes it takes time to change the, the conversation in a common law system, and and sometimes it's part of a long game. Okay, so to answer your question on the media... Um, <laughs> uh, so I have to say that I started my career, um, I think, like many lawyers, being very afraid of the media, um, being terrified I was going to say something that I was going to get sued about, or I was going to say the wrong thing, or I would come across as, um, you know, incoherent or not putting my client's position forward. Um, and then having been... As a young lawyer working for Clay and Marlis, involved in fairly high-profile cases, in particular the ERRC the, inquiry, where you know I, I was Marlis's junior, uh, and you know there was a team of us working on it. It was clear the media is going to be there. The media is often interested. You can't necessarily determine what the media is going to be interested in, but if they are interested in your case, they're going to be there whether you like it or not. Um, and so you need to have real conversations with your clients about what role you are going to play in the media um, and how you shape the conversation and, you know, there, there are different ways to be uh, involved in the media. You know, I heard Michael talking, Michael Lacey in his, his podcast talking about, you know, being helpful and trying to explain the process to the media. I think that's really important. I think that's a crucial role for defense counsel is to make sure that the journalists are going who are writing about your case know what's going on. Know, you know, obviously you've got to be careful about privilege issues. Mm-hmm. But then there are other times where you actually can find a reporter that you know is Onside and interested, and also interested in the long game of your case, Um, and that is a really interesting part of being a lawyer. Uh, Certainly, in the Arar inquiry, uh, for example, Anna Maria Tremonti at CBC was Mm -hmm. interested in his case from the beginning. There were other reporters. I don't mean to, you know, I, I don't mean to single her out or to suggest that there weren't. But and likewise with the Ashley Smith inquiry, there were there there were reporters who were there from the beginning who wanted to be part of this storytelling. Um, and so it's no, it goes back to the, what I said, you know, about what's my mantra, you know, tell a convincing story. Um, that's what the media wants. That's what the public needs to understand your issues. Mm -hmm. And so if you can tell a compelling story in a way that the public understands it, it's only going to help your case. Um, and that's, that's, I think the, the value of being involved with the media. Um, it's, they'll tell a story whether you like it or not. Right. And they're going to try and tell a compelling story, whether you like it or not. And you might as well try and make it compelling in your favor.
1: Right. Moving outside of the individual case. So like, I'm curious what you feel to be the role of defense counsel, if any, um, in general, in the sense that having a dialogue, and to use one example in particular, um, with recent events, there's been a lot of talk about the presumption of innocence. And a couple of politicians have gone so far as to say, you know, the quote, the presumption of innocence is strictly for the court. And you know, regardless of your position on it or anyone's position on it, is there a duty in your view upon defense counsel to engage the media in a general sense and try and educate the public on what that actually means and how it affects us all?
0: Absolutely. Um, I, um, I, I, do a lot of writing uh, in for the media. Um, you know, I write op-eds about things that get under my skin. Um, and I think it's really important that we all talk about what we do, how we do it, why the system is the way it is. I mean, we didn't come up with the presumption of innocence last week. Um, you know, it's been a part of our system for hundreds of years and it's important and people need to understand why it's important. Um, and the, it's very easy to, um, malign our clients and then to conflate our clients with the lawyers. And I think it's important for the public to understand the role of defense counsel in the system and to understand the system. I mean, I did a lot of speaking publicly, Uh, around the Gomeshi trial and the public debate and public debate about our system is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not going to get better if we're not listening to people who criticize it and listening to people's experiences and thinking about how we can do this better. And, you know, are we balancing the interests? Everything in law is about balancing different interests. And sometimes we get the balance more or less right, and sometimes we don't. And so it's always important to think about those issues and talk about those issues. But it the conversation has to be an informed conversation, um, and it has to be informed not only by people's political views or the results that they want in a particular case. In fact, it shouldn't be informed by that at all. It should be informed by what are the principles that underlie our system? What is, what's the, why do we have them in the first place? What's the importance of them? And how do we ensure that when new issues arise, we incorporate them into our system in a way that doesn't offset the balance. So can we do more for, for example, for complainants in sexual violence cases, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure, there are, there are other things that should be can and should be done in the system um, that will make it more accessible if that's what people want to do. If people want to go through the criminal justice system, they should feel that there aren't uh, aspects of that system that are uh, in their way or traumatizing or all, any of those sorts of things. But we can't do that at the expense of other fundamental, principles in our system, like the presumption of innocence or the burden of proof. So you always have to be figuring out where's the balance that we can strike. Um, and remembering that our system is premised on the idea that wrongful convictions are the worst thing that we could have. Taking away someone's liberty who did not commit an offense is the worst, uh, use or abuse of state power that is possible in this country. We don't have the death penalty, thank God. Um, But putting someone in jail and taking away their liberty for something they did not do, we all have to be concerned about that. And we all, our system has to be designed to prevent that from happening.
1: The the concerning part of it though, is there really is only one player in the system that can have that dialogue because the crown attorneys don't engage in this sort of discussion judges certainly don't and so defense lawyers are often looked upon as providing the counter voice and and um you know what what can be done who to a public who's going to look to defense lawyers with um i suppose understandably a certain degree of cynicism because we're representing the people that are the ones who are often charged right Uh,
0: you're right that uh Crowns don't speak to the media and judges don't. I think it's right that judges don't speak to the media. I think, uh, you know, their independence is so important in the system that, um, you know, that, that individual judges ought not to speak to the media. They should speak through their cases and that's sort of the, the approach of our system. I think that's right. I don't quite frankly understand why the Crowns don't engage in a public discussion about this. Um, you know, if you look at cases and there's, you know, there's academic research being done about the problems with, you know, how defense counsel engage themselves. And, and I have never seen research on whether crown attorneys ask defense lawyers or accuse people the wrong questions and cases that those cases get overturned on that basis as well. Um, but I don't, I don't understand why, um, the crowns aren't talking about the importance of defense counsel in the system. We talk about the importance of all sorts of at players in the system and the importance of different principles. I think it's incumbent on all of us, um, to explain to the public what our system is about, um, and what the values of it are, what, how it functions, um, because without public confidence in the system, you know, it's not really got any value. And so I I don't understand why crown, I mean, maybe not individual crowns, but I don't understand why they, they seem to not engage with the media.
1: We've, you know, we've. That's certainly a change that I think many would welcome. I think uh, the judiciary would even welcome that. And I, I, I know that um, in some cases, as of late, there's been frustration with, you know, comments to the court, whether it be by media or politicians, and um, it seems rather unfair that the court is left to sit there in silence. And I agree with you; it's, it has to be done. You, you can't you know, wade in, but. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, um, approach beyond that change, um, and everything else we've discussed, cause we've discussed a lot of great recommendations and, and discussions about the justice system. And I hope it's been illuminating to people listening to it, but is there something else that you would, um, look at whether you were attorney general of the province or chief justice, and you had all this power to make one sweeping change for the better. Can you think of one thing that just really needs to change quickly?
0: Yeah, I would abolish the use of segregation in our prisons. Um, I think we don't need it. Uh, I know prisons are complicated and jails are complicated and everybody has to be safe in them, including the people that work in them. Uh, but we know it's so harmful. Um, and unless you abolish it, it will continue to be used. Uh, it is an easy management tool. And if you let the correctional people use it. They will use it. Uh, and I think we know enough about how harmful it is uh, that we should just abolish it. Um, and we should abolish it now. We should have abolished it, you know, when the UN Special Rapporteur on torture uh, proclaimed that long-term segregation was torture, uh, which they equate with 15 days. Uh, but quite frankly, the fact that, you know, if you, if you accept that, premise that 15 days in segregation amounts to torture. The Canadian government and the provincial government are authorizing torture in our prisons. And um, I think it should be abolished.
1: Well, it's encouraging to hear that those issues have now percolated their way up to the top. And I think in large part, it started with, uh, you know, uh, the case of um, Ashley Smith. And I think Um, many people will, whether directly or indirectly have, have you to thank. Um, and I want to thank you because this has been a really interesting podcast and I think our listeners have learned so much from it. Um, Breeze Davies, I really appreciate you coming today.
0: Thanks. Thanks.